Well, we are here again this morning to look into God's Word. That's, that's why we are here, to hear the voice of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as He speaks to us. I want to speak to you this morning about the, the supreme affirmation. There is no other affirmation that we could ever think of in, in history prior to us or in the future that is greater than the affirmation that we're going to read this morning. This is the, the greatest, this is the supreme, this is the pinnacle of all affirmations. Before we get there, I just want to open up by talking to you for a second about the, the, the work of God. The fact that there is a hidden element to it. It is on the one hand very public. Oftentimes the work of God is very public and for all to see. And yet even when it is public, oftentimes it still remains hidden. The work of God is often hidden, as it were, in plain sight. Hidden in plain sight. The very work of God hidden in plain sight. Recently, I was in the uh, doctor's office, the dentist's office, with uh, a couple of my children. And as we were sitting there, uh, one of them said to me, Hey, Dad, will you play this game with me that they found, out, they found in Highlights magazine? And uh, I can, Highlights goes back a long ways. And uh, maybe you remember um, uh, Highlights when you were a kid. I mean, it, it, goes, it goes way, way back. And I, in fact, I still remember, I can't even remember their names right now, but those two brothers, one, one was like Doofus and the other one was, was, was really good. Anyway, we were, we were, playing, this, we were playing this game where uh, there was a picture, and within this picture there were different objects that you had to find. And the objects were right there, and it was amazing. We found a number of them right away. And for a while, we were searching for others. And here I am, a, a grown man, looking at this picture with my kid, trying to find things like an apple and a crescent moon and other objects that were in this picture. What, what were they? Were they there? Yes, they were there. But they were hidden right there in plain sight, right in front of us. We're looking and looking, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there, there they are. In, in many ways, that's how the work of God is, the work of God. It's amazing how many people in this community, in this city, are going about their daily lives without really thinking much about their utter need for God. The work of God is going on. In fact, the work of God is going on in churches like ours. The gospel is being preached. It's not hidden. People know we're here. People can come and find us. People can come through these doors. These doors are very public. They could come in. They see signs, even though ours is, is fading. They see our sign, and they could come in at 11 o'clock and join us. There's many other churches that people could publicly walk into, no problem. And yet many people aren't even thinking about these things. They don't realize that the work of God is going on right now as we are talking. God is working powerfully and profoundly without their permission and even with their ignorance. 
God isn't up in heaven saying, I'm going to wait to start working, or I'm only allowed to work once people are no longer ignorant, or once people give me the permission, or once people find out that, that I'm God and that I, I'm the God of the Bible and all these things, then I can begin to work. That's not the way he works. He's carrying out his plan in the midst of darkness in a very public way, and yet, in the same time, in a very hidden way. He's working. And our hearts this morning should be crying out to God, saying, God, we, we recognize that you're at work. You have, you have brought us near to you. The greatest thing in all the world is to know Jesus Christ. And God, we hunger that this public work that you're doing in our midst and in the midst of the people of God globally, God, that it would be seen on a very wide scale. That instead of people waking up and simply going and, and jumping on the boat or, 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 or raking leaves or, or just sleeping in or doing whatever they want to do and then watching TV for the rest of the day or going shopping or whatever it is that they do, Lord, we ask you that the public demonstration of the Holy Spirit that is taking place right in front of us, like that picture, that instead of being hidden from our eyes, oh God, that you would open our eyes to see the fact, number one, that we have been privileged to know you. God, you could have left us in the darkness. God, this morning, we could be the guy raking the leaves without any understanding of who you are, just a faint knowledge of the fact that you exist. Knowing you exist, but that's about it. God, you could have left us in a, in a nine-to-five job where all we do is we wake up in the morning, we don't really publicly acknowledge you, we don't even privately acknowledge you. We simply go through our life, we earn paycheck to paycheck, we save a little, and then after a life of 60, 70, 80, 90 years, or maybe even shorter than that, we die and then that's it. The work of God is, is going on. God is working powerfully all over the world right now. And our prayer should be, God, help us and enable us not to miss it. We don't want to miss what you're doing. And I get the sense that as we read our text in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, you have this very public event with the most preeminent, the preeminent public affirmation. And yet there were people there, even though they were seeing a very demonstration of God, weren't getting it. If, if we just read this text, there's this sense of we're reading about the, the baptism of Jesus, that we just kind of glide right through it. Oh, yes, Jesus was baptized. How nice is that? Isn't that wonderful? He was, he was baptized in the Jordan River uh, by John the Baptist. Isn't that a nice little tidbit of information that we can teach the kids in Sunday school? And we kind of glide past all that is really being taught there. And we glide past what is really being affirmed there. 
and we glide past the fact that our hearts should be affected by all of the Word of God, that it's not just learning little story after little story after little story. Listen, people right now are dying out there. They're dying spiritually. They don't know God. They don't know God. And the work of God is going on all around. It's not hidden. And yet it is hidden. The work of God is right there for all to see. The gospel's going forward. How many tracts have been distributed? How many pamphlets have been distributed? How many people have Bibles in their own home? How many people can turn on TV and hear or see something about Jesus? Not always that good, depending on what channel you watch. But truly, the work of God is often hidden in plain sight. And our prayer should be this morning, God, affect us. God, help us to be easily moved. Lord, we want to be the people that, that, that saw what was going on in these texts of Scripture. God, we want to see this public affirmation of who you are for what it really is so that, God, we might be filled with joy and that we might worship you all the more. Now you have John the Baptist. He's been preaching. He's been preaching for, scholars say, six months. That seems to be uh, the extent of how long he's been preaching. We know that he was six months older than Christ. So many scholars say that his ministry had started six months before and he had been preaching for six months. And he's preaching to the people publicly as we're talking about here right now. He's preaching, repent. Repent of your sins. And the people in many ways are enamored at the fact that he's saying the Messiah is right around the corner. This is the one they, they've been waiting for. They're excited. This is good news. They're willing to be baptized even though they're Jews. That's okay. We'll, we'll still be baptized. We'll come and we'll say that we repent of our, of our sins. We'll repent because what you're teaching us is that the Messiah is right around the corner. And he is. And John the Baptist and Jesus were relatives. We don't know exactly the extent of their relationship when they were growing up, being only six months apart. You know, did they, did they play sports together? We don't know. Uh, if they played golf, Jesus was probably rather irritating for John the Baptist to play with. He never, he never fudged any numbers ever. But you have these two relatives who are, who are growing up and and all of a sudden, you can see John the Baptist is baptizing person after person after person. And all of a sudden, we don't know exactly how this happened, but he looks up and he sees his relative there. And Jesus says to him, I've come to be baptized. And John, this relative of his, only, only a, a differential in age of a matter of months, is looking at him and he's, he's thinking to himself, 
Me baptize you. Me baptize you. After all, this baptism is a baptism of repentance for the remission, the forgiveness, the letting go of sins. And he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, you don't need to be baptized. You've never sinned. In fact, John says, he looks at him and he says, you don't need to be baptized. He says, but actually it's me. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus insists. He says, no, no, no. This is the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I want to show this to you in Matthew chapter 3. If you'll flip over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew, the third chapter. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he says, I need to be baptized. Now if you go over to our text in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It says, In those days, uh, Jesus came from Nazareth of, of Galilee. That's interesting. Nazareth is this obscure town in the north. It's in the northern reaches of Israel. And it's part of the region of Galilee. In fact, if you go to, if you go to uh, John chapter 1, Nathaniel's talking. And he says this. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, he's not, he's not demeaning Nazareth. He's not cutting Nazareth down. But he's simply saying the context there is the law and the prophets. And he's, he's simply saying, listen, the... The scripture doesn't say anything about Nazareth. In fact, it's very interesting. If you go to the Old Testament, Nazareth is never even mentioned. And yet the scripture is very clear. If you go to Luke chapter 4, we won't go there this morning, but Luke chapter 4 is very clear that Jesus Christ, even though he was born in Bethlehem, he then moved to Egypt. And then later on, after Herod was dead, the Bible says that the family moved back to Nazareth. And so here he is in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. He's in this little town that's never even mentioned in the Old Testament. And Nathaniel in John 1 is scratching his head and he's saying, you know what, if, if I remember right, I've, I've heard, of course, of the Messiah. I know all about the Savior who's coming, the Messiah. 
Bethlehem would have, would have crossed his mind. He would have known about other prophecies. Psalm 22, he would have known many other prophecies. Isaiah 53 about Christ. He's going through his mind and he's thinking to himself, but Nazareth, nothing good could come out of Nazareth in the sense of it's not even talked about in the scripture. And yet here was Jesus, around 30 years of age, the scripture tells us, around 30 years of age, not that old, from this obscure town in the region of Galilee, now shows up at the Jordan River, looking at his relative, they're in Judea, and he says, I must be baptized by you. John is quizzical. He's wondering, why, why is this? And Jesus gives us the reason, the purpose for his baptism in Matthew chapter 3 when he says, it is fit fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What is, what is he saying? What is, what is he talking about when he says, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness? Well, God the Father had a plan he was going to send his son into the world who would completely identify with human beings. In other words, he would live in our place. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about fulfilling all righteousness. He is saying, I have come to identify with humanity in their plight. I recognize that all human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even though many people in Wilkes-Barre and many people in Kingston and Larksville and Edwardsville and all the surrounding areas going all the way over to the Middle East have no understanding of their need for someone to come and to identify with them, Jesus says, listen, I've come so that I can identify with the people. And even though he had never committed any sin himself, even though he is completely pure and spotless, even though he had done absolutely nothing wrong and would do nothing wrong, he says, I'm with them. Because we needed someone who would come and identify himself with us and actually live in our place the life that we could never live. The Bible says that we must be perfect in Matthew chapter 5, the last verse of Matthew 5, that we must be perfect, and yet we're not perfect. So here we are stuck in our sin, unable to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And yet many people don't even realize the plight that they're in. How many people have you talked to and you've had a conversation with them, and they've said something to the effect of, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately uh, about the fact that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. My guess from the looks this morning is you probably haven't talked to one, and yet that's the greatest need, the fact that we're sinners and we're absolutely helpless. 
And so God, even though we were blind, decided to work in plain sight for us because he loves us. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to show this to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what it means to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying that even though we are sinners and he is sinless, never committed any sin, completely spotless, completely pure, says I'm going to be baptized as if I were a sinner so that I can identify with the people that I intend to save. That's what's going on here. And if you think about that, the fact that our only hope rests in a Savior who would identify himself with us, who knew our weaknesses, who knew our sin, who knew our plight, and said, even though I am in the glory of heaven, I'm going to step out of heaven and put on a body and identify with the people so that they might actually have a savior. And so there you have Jesus in the middle of this dirty river being baptized by a sinner. This is the utter humility of Christ this is the condescension of Christ, that he would lay aside the glory of heaven to come here to be just like one of us and say, I'm with you. And if you need uh, any encouragement this morning, praise the Lord. If you need any encouragement this morning, it's the fact that you have one that identifies himself with you. So no matter what you're going through, and no matter how lost you feel, you have one that came down and said, I'm going to live in your place. That's the good news of what's going on here with this baptism. And do you know how few people recognize that? I mean, this is public stuff. He, he wasn't baptized in a bathtub in a, in a house somewhere. This is, this is public. But yet it's hidden in plain sight. People didn't understand. Many of them still don't understand exactly what is going on. But we don't even see what the purpose of the baptism is, but we also see a presentation of who God is himself. Look with me at our text here again, Mark chapter 1. Now notice this. So he's baptized by John in verse 9 there, John the Baptist, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That's the right word there. They were ripped open. Like the Old Testament says, oh God, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens and come down. And Christ sees as he's coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens opened up. And Matthew Henry says he not only saw the sufferings that were before him in the road that laid ahead, but he also saw the glory and the glories that were coming to him after the cross. And so the Bible says here that the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Like a dove. Now we need to be very clear here. The Spirit is not a dove. And we see all sorts of pictures of doves, especially when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But this was a physical manifestation that was symbolic of the Spirit's coming upon Jesus Christ as he now began his public ministry. I want to go to Luke chapter 3. If you go with me to Luke chapter 3, we get a little bit clearer picture of what's going on here as far as the dove is concerned. Luke chapter uh, 3. In verse, uh, verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, we just read that, and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. In bodily form. With a body. So this was not invisible. This was seen. So a dove descends, and this is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. This is a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. So we have this, this dove that descends, and we see in the scriptures that the dove represents the, the gentleness of God, the purity of God. One of the wonderful things about the Holy Spirit is that he's gentle, he's powerful and strong. The way that he changes us, the way that he empowers us, the way that he convicts us of our sin is, is done in a gentle way. We don't have a harsh God. It's wonderful to think about. When we're standing here in worship and we're worshiping in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're enjoying His gentle presence that is with us, His strong and effectual presence, but nonetheless His gentle presence as well. There's different pictures in the Old Testament that might come to our mind as we think about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, one in particular seems to stand out. In Genesis chapter 1, um, we'll just read the first couple verses, but in Genesis chapter 1 it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now listen to this. Here's, here's the picture that we get. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
So we have this picture of God the Holy Spirit as he's hovering over the face of the waters. And this is the picture we see of the Holy Spirit like the form of a dove as he comes down and it is clearly seen, it's visible. Something is going on that is seen to the eye. As his Holy Spirit comes down and he rests as he hovers upon Jesus. It's interesting, the scripture says that Jesus Christ was given the Spirit without measure. If you turn to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 34. And John chapter 3, verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit, that is, the Spirit has been given to the Son without measure. So the Spirit comes to rest upon Jesus as he now is empowered and begins to start his public ministry. One interesting thing to note is the fact that Jesus Christ in his ministry did everything through the power of the Holy Spirit. I thought I'd read this to you. This is interesting from A.W. Tozer. He says this, he says, while our Lord Jesus was on earth, he did not accomplish his great deeds of power in the strength of his deity. It's something to think about. He says, while Jesus was here on earth, he is fully God, was fully God, as we've talked about and are going to talk about. But he says he didn't accomplish his, his miracles and his signs through his deity. But notice what he says. He says, I believe that he did them all in the strength and authority of his spirit-anointed humanity. He says that he did these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why would he do that? Well, again, because he's identifying with us. How do we do things in the power of God? We do them in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I'm just like you guys, yet without sin. That's what he's saying. I'm just, I'm a human. I'm fully identifying myself with people. And I'm coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about someone who is fully God. Fully God. Acts chapter 5, if you go with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And we see this in Acts chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit is not a force, he's not an it, but he's a he. In verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? But then he says this at the end of verse 4, he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? But to God. What is he saying here? He's saying that the Holy Spirit is, is fully God. So in this baptism, you have God the Son. You have Jesus Christ there. You have the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove upon Jesus. So you have the Holy Spirit. But notice what you have next in our text. You have a voice in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven and said this, You are my beloved son. 
With you, I am well pleased. I have a picture of the Trinity here, a clear teaching of the Trinity. This text is not only teaching us that Jesus Christ is the unique one who identifies with people in their sins, but this is also a clear presentation of the Godhead, that there's one God, there's Father, there's Son, and there's Holy Spirit, and all three of them are clearly seen here in Jesus' baptism as you have the voice from heaven, you have the Spirit descending like a dove, and you have the Son being baptized. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 4. If you flip over there, Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 6 says this. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is this talking about? This is talking about the fact that the Father is fully God. There's one God, one God, consisting of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have the purpose, we have the presentation, but we also have a pronouncement. And this is the pronouncement as the voice from heaven, which is heard and is audible, and those who are standing there can hear what the father is saying he says in verse 11 you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased this is the loved one his only son is what he is saying here and he's saying you are my only son and with you i am well pleased this actually comes from a couple different verses in the old testament this is the pronouncement of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah King. If you go to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. The scripture says this, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. So there is the son part. The, the father is saying, you are my son. If you go over to Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, uh, says this, Behold my servant... Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I, uh, I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So you have this public affirmation. This is the one. This is the one who identifies himself with the people. This is the Son of God. And this is the one who's going to come as the Messiah King to redeem people from sin. And you have the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. I just, I just want to close by saying just a, a couple things here. There's no greater public affirmation in Scripture of 
Jesus Christ and his role than what we find right here. This is it. The Father himself is saying, this is the one. It's one thing for us to say, yes, we believe Jesus Christ is a, a good man or, or whatever. But the Father is saying, this is my beloved Son. In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he would say essentially the same thing. This is my beloved Son. And then he would say, hear him, listen to him. This is, this is the one whom we listen to. And there's something wonderful about the public affirmation of a father. The son is being publicly affirmed. And if I could just say in way of passing that our kids are looking for father's public affirmation. It's important to affirm them. Regardless of what they've done, the fact that they're sinners just like we are. Say, that's my boy. I delight in him. Or, that's my girl. I delight in her. And I believe we're in a generation today that many, many kids need public affirmation from their fathers. You have the son here, the son of God, and he's being publicly affirmed. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus would later on he'd say, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. He recognized that even fathers who are stained with sin still love their children. And perhaps there are kids in our church who don't have dads. And there are. And perhaps you're an adult here today and you've never heard that from your own dad. I affirm you. I affirm you. I love you. And God would say, first of all, I'm a father to the fatherless. It's amazing in the life of single moms what God can do. There is hope. Don't you ever think that there's not hope. If you're sitting here and you're going, I'm a single mom, God will, God will lift you up. God will be your strength. But also the strength of men within the church to come along and say, I affirm you. Wow, that's neat what you're doing. And here on a much greater infinite level, we have the Father, Father God himself, and he is saying of his own son, this is the one. This is the one who is so loving and who is so compassionate that he would be willing to be baptized simply to identify himself with us. And he says, I love him for that. I love him. I delight in him. Why don't we just stand for a second as we close in a word of prayer.
Well, Father, we thank you for the fact that you have sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to identify himself, to fulfill all righteousness. God, you had a plan of righteousness that had to be perfectly fulfilled. And there was no one who could fulfill it save one.